This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail, or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I'm feeling a little better this week. I'm not totally out of the woods, but I feel a little bit more vigorous. So hopefully we have a good show today. I want to do something a little bit differently this week than I've done in past weeks. I want to address three specific emails that I've received written in response to previous episodes of this podcast. The first is from Ted. He's responding to episode 26 titled, Don't Be Illogical. Ted writes, I just listened to your episode entitled, Don't Be Illogical, and I want to take a moment to comment, which is something I never do. I agree it is unwise to judge a thing from one or two illogical ideas, comments, counsel, or teachings. I must say, however, that cherry trees produce more than one fruit. And I think what Ted means here is that cherry trees produce more than one cherry. There's lots of cherry fruits, not that cherry trees produce oranges and pears and grapes and Ted continues, when I use human logic bestowed upon me by my creator, I can't help but consider the sum total of all the illogical things produced by Joseph Smith's creation, and it would be illogical not to consider the entire body of evidence. It is not a tittle here nor there. In fact, it has grown into a large tree weighed down by a a plethora of illogical fruits. In fact, those fruits led me to believe that Joseph could not be a prophet, nor have any of the men who have served after him. For the body of evidence grows with each new leader, struggling to keep people in the boat. I can't unsee the illogical actions and resulting conclusions behind them. I cannot believe the book Joseph created or the doctrine he espoused, yet I still admit there can be beauty there. I hope that you... I think he means me, Jack. I hope that you, Jack, will not judge those who leave the church with the illogical notion that it was only one isolated wacky thing that caused them to leave. Some of us see wacky town. And again, I think what Ted means is that the church experience in totality is, at least for Ted and many people like him, the same as living in wacky town. Ted continues, there are far too many members engulfed In this group, think that members leave over petty things only. This is harmful to their fellow humans and actually feeds the brainwashing stereotypes that members have towards those who leave. Then at the end, Ted says, just my two cherries worth, and I hope your convalescing is nearing its end. Well, that was nice. Thanks, Ted. And this was actually an excellent email, very well thought out. And I appreciate Ted, and I'm glad he sent it. Thank you, Ted. But Ted raises a lot of points, and I wanted to address some of those. The first is I want to be very clear. I do not judge anyone who leaves the church. As I said in episode 26, if you don't want to attend church, don't attend church. That's none of my business. I don't care. I don't mean to sound indifferent, and I don't mean to sound harsh, but the reality is I'm not one of those people who cares if the church grows or if people are attending. I I just... It's not my personality to care about those things. I don't care. If you don't want to come to church, don't come to church. That's the first thing. Second thing is I'm not doing this podcast to try to make people who decided to not attend church feel guilty. That is not the goal of Mormon Awakenings. Thirdly, I did not mean to imply that I think 
that people who leave the church are categorically leaving for one or two dumb, silly, petty reasons. I used an example in episode 26 where Joseph Fielding Smith stated as a prophet that man will never walk on the moon. Well, we see that man has walked on the moon, so he was wrong. And I raised this example of Joseph Fielding Smith because I wanted to state very explicitly that if you've left the church because Joseph Fielding Smith said something that wasn't right, if, if you've left for that isolated reason, that's illogical. And, and I was trying to illustrate how the human mind uses heuristics. I was not saying that I think that most people who have left the church have left for silly, petty, dumb reasons. At the same time, I do think it's easy for us to use isolated, silly, even dumb things as fuel for our anger or as fuel for our feeling disaffected from something, be it church or family or school or the group or whatever it is. And I think that's dangerous and leads to unhappiness. But what I was not saying is that if you have left the church or become inactive, that you are this type of person. Categorically, per se. That's not what I'm saying. So I wanted to clarify that misunderstanding. And, and thank you, Ted, for the email. I do appreciate the email. But there's another thing that I want to say as well in response to this email, a, a deeper issue I think that is raised, which is this. What does it matter what I think? That sounds abrupt. That sounds mean even. But I think it's a question everyone needs to ask themselves. When you decide upon a course of action, what does it matter what anyone says about it? If you've done your homework, if you've thought through it, if you've got all the facts, if you've got all the details, if you're using logic appropriately, you've come to a conclusion. What does it matter what anyone might think or say about your decision about anything? To attend church, to not attend church, to get married, to go to a certain school, what does it matter? And of course, it only matters if you, decider, chooser, believes that the person with the opinion knows more than you or is somehow smarter than you or has somehow been endowed by God to render judgment over you. And I raise this because as we're running the race of life, this is a big hurdle we all face at some point. We're cruising along. We're going around the back curve of the high school track. And then there's this massive hurdle. And we can never make it over the hurdle until we come to a decision about a very fundamental question. Is there someone else who is smarter, knows more, has more authority, more insight about what I ought to do than I do? And sometimes there is. I mean, there are people who are smarter about things than we are. But how much authority you give another person, how much credence you lend to their views is your decision. So if you're confident about your decision to do something, to attend church or not, to get married or not, to take a certain job or not, what does it matter what anyone else says? We all face that hurdle in life. This is a point of disagreement between me and Bill Real, by the way. I think, I think Bill feels that the group should validate our thoughts, our feelings, our conclusions, and I think the group serves as a litmus test, as an indicator about how independent you've actually become or not. Because if the group 
or the opinions or any individual inside the group can get under your skin about one of your one of your decisions, you're, I think, granting them some of your authority. I'm not saying it's easy to clear this hurdle as you're running through life, but you got to figure out a way to get over it if you want to truly be independent. And maybe you don't, and it's none of my business. And my conclusions about it shouldn't matter because on the side of your iPhone or on the edge of your computer, there's a little button that can turn this podcast off. Same logic applies to general conference or scriptures or church or any voluntary activity. You cannot do it, not believe it. You can choose. You can pick and choose. You can partially do it. We often use phrases in life that we have to do something. I have to, you know, do that. I have to exercise. I have to go to work. I have to, you know, I can't go to the party this Saturday because I have to study. I have to, you don't have to do anything, actually. Certainly not as a human being with agency. Certainly not as an adult. You can choose. And in fact, this whole have to language disguises the freedom to choose that we really enjoy. You choose. This is going to sound strange, but I really believe it's a great blessing to just not give a crap about what others think. This is also going to sound strange, but I think for some of us, our life's purpose in coming to this earth is to learn that skill, the skill of retaining your authority, which is a nicer, more refined way of saying that you just don't give a crap about what other people think. So that's my response to Ted's email. Ted, thank you for the email. I wrote Ted back as well. I really appreciate emails like the one I received from Ted. Thanks. The next email I want to address is also an email written in response to episode 26, Don't Be Illogical. It's from Nadine. She writes, Though I can see the reasoning to an extent... I'm having difficulty with this podcast. Episode 26, Don't Be Illogical. Trust is built when a person makes a mistake and acknowledges they have done so. Nadine then references an acknowledgement that I made at the beginning of episode 26 about my own mistake in confusing information I thought came from a Larry King interview when said information came from a Time magazine article. Nadine continues... The important thing in that mistake you made, Jack, is that you acknowledged it and let your listeners know that you made the mistake. Now I am more confident in your credibility because you care about giving me the correct information. And I must say, as an aside, yes, that's true, Nadine. I do care about giving the correct information, and I appreciate the confidence you've placed in me. Thank you, Nadine. Nadine continues. So when you bring up the Fanny Alger issue or the no man on the moon quote, I have a problem. Mistakes or part truths are rampant throughout the Mormon church history. Then there are the other problems such as doctrines that have had to change over time, such as the age of the earth, that the American Indians were Lamanites. The book of Abraham was a literal writing of Abraham transcribed by Joseph Smith from a Egyptian papyri, the curse of Cain, and much more. 
I could accept it all, and I think she means these mistakes, and realize that there are a whole lot of messy issues, and I'm trying to do just that so I can feel like my Mormon church is something I can be a part of. However, this is the part that is so difficult for me, the church or the power structure. And yes, I believe it is 15 men sitting around a big table chose to not allow the discussion of these problems. Instead, those who bring up the issues are gaslighted, disciplined, and or excommunicated. We are told to stay faithful and not to go to any sources outside of mormon.org, the scriptures, and to rely on prayer for our answers if we ask sincere questions in Sunday school. And I think the implication here is sincere but controversial questions in Sunday school. We are hushed or overlooked. I realize that the church doesn't have good answers to a lot of these issues. But the hard part is that even acknowledging there have been mistakes or misdeeds is not allowed. This is also a great email from Nadine. Thank you, Nadine. I think Nadine, like Ted, is trying to explain, look, we don't have issues with the church because of just some dumb offhanded comment made in 1952 about the moon or we take issue with deeper, broader problems and situations than that. Nadine explains what her particular issues are, and that's that the church refuses to acknowledge mistakes made, refuses to acknowledge inaccuracies and fables that have crept into historical narratives propounded by the church. Her feeling, though she doesn't say this, it's implied that that the church always has to be totally right and have the final say on everything. And by the church, I mean the church hierarchy, the 12 or 15 men sitting around the table and or their proxies. This undermines her confidence in the church because it simply won't acknowledge mistakes. And we all make mistakes and the church has made mistakes and they won't acknowledge it. And so how can you really trust them? And I think there's something to this. I don't hold quite as severe an opinion regarding this matter as Nadine does today in 2017, because I think things are quite different in the church than they were even 5, 10, certainly 20 years ago. Regarding inquiry into church history or inquiry into sources of scripture, inquiry into broadly accepted narratives that may or may not be factually accurate. I point to the gospel topic essays. The church has acknowledged a lot, in my view, some of the more sordid details of early polygamy. The church has written essays about Book of Mormon archaeology or lack thereof. They've talked about the Book of Abraham. They've acknowledged quite explicitly that the mark of Cain, the curse of Cain, and the corresponding priesthood ban was was made up, was bad doctrine, not inspired. There is this fundamental tension, though, between change and progress and then truth claims being the one true church. There's a fundamental tension between those two needs, and I don't think the church has really figured out how to navigate that tension very well it may prove over the long term that that tension cannot be navigated and either change or truth claims need to be need to go. And I'm not sure how that's all going to look, but it's a dynamic process. And it's something that the church is really struggling with now this, this tension between those two positions. 
and it's happening in real time and it's happening faster and faster and faster like everything else in our world. There's more information. There's more data. Things change rapidly and that's happening to our church as well. And so we see them grappling in real time how to handle, on the one hand, fundamental truth claims that seem inviolate and the need to progress and grow and change. And this is all driven by massive fear, in my view, that if you change too quickly, everyone's going to basically go crazy, run off the rails and start indulging in bad behavior, stop paying tithing and basically leave and just do whatever they want. It'll be the 60s all over again for the LDS church. Fear, of course, brings out the worst in everybody. So I think in this era, era, we're witnessing all this in real time, whereas 20, 30, certainly 50 years ago, the final product consumed by the members was more easily packaged, presented in an unadulterated form with no outside parties chiming in, stirring things up. My own view is that this has been good for the church. This is going to take us to a higher level. It's good to eliminate fear. It's good to eliminate control. It's good to eliminate hierarchical mandates, orders, if you will. What's good and rigorous and long-lasting bubbles to the surface in this process. Nadine's final point is worth talking about. She says there's no real safe space to discuss any of these things. You can't raise controversial questions at church. You get shut down. And I think this phenomenon varies widely depending on your geography. I was informed by a member in Virginia that there's a stake in Virginia where every Tuesday night there's a meeting scheduled. And at that meeting, anyone can say anything. The person who informed me of this also told me that she raised the idea of a historical rather than a literal Jesus. And she told me the story to emphasize that Anything could be discussed at this meeting. No holds barred. There's no such meeting in my state here in Massachusetts. However, my ward is pretty liberal and pretty open-minded. And, you know, you can talk about a lot of things. You can't talk about everything. And I think part of that is just the dynamics of a group. I think all groups, all affiliations have certain rules about what's right and good to talk about and what is taboo and beyond the the bounds. I think that happens in families and corporations and companies and associations, country clubs. I mean, this kind of happens in life. I'm not quite sure how you get around that. When you voluntarily associate with a group, I think you implicitly accept the general guidelines about what's acceptable behavior. And when it's a voluntary association, I think you have fewer rights to gripe and moan about what those rules ought to be you know, I can I, I point out the volunteer because I think it's important to distinguish between a voluntary association and a mandatory one. If you're forced to associate, it feels more like oppression by a government that, that will enforce these rules with violence. But one's association with the church is a voluntary association. I know a lot of people don't really feel that way about it. They feel like they, they must attend because of family pressure or the, the neighborhood that they live in or, the, you know, there's society's pressure where if they're living in a... Mormon-dominated area, but, but you don't. You don't have to associate with the church. You don't have to participate. It's a voluntary thing. No one will put you in jail if you don't participate. Now, some people say, well, I, I'll lose economic opportunity. You know, it gets very complicated. I'm, I'm not here to pass judgment on, on any of those sort of things, but very fundamentally, it's voluntary. 
And there are certain rules, ward by ward by ward, stake by stake by stake, that define what's allowable. And I, I don't know how to get around that. I think accepting those rules can be a tough burden. I don't like accepting those type of rules. As a younger man, I really hated those type of restrictions. I felt that they were imposed on me. But I've grown to just accept that as part of life, not just in church, but in my town, at the schools, in the workplace, in family. I mean, it's just, it's just part of life. I don't know how we engineer around that. I think it's unfortunate if you're in a ward that's highly conservative and oppressively rigid. Finally, one of the takeaways for me anyways regarding Nadine's email was that it reminded me of a phenomenon that I've observed over the years inside the church. And it seems like the people who are the best members of the church are also the least doctrinaire and the least concerned about black and white issues, doctrine, history, rules. They almost don't even care about those sort of things and or they've risen above it. Now, that sounds like I'm saying the best people in the church are those who, who don't really care or believe it. I'm not, I'm not going quite that far. What I think I'm trying to say is the best people in the church are those who don't let any of that stuff stop them from being good people, from helping other people, from loving other people. They don't stop being good Christians because Christianity is so screwed up. They don't stop being good Mormons because Mormon history and Mormonism is kind of screwed up. I know on one level that makes no sense, that that's illogical. (laughs) Maybe I ought to redo episode 26 about don't be illogical. I mean, it is illogical. But I think those type of people, they're living life the way soldiers in a platoon are living life. Soldiers in a platoon, for example, have repeatedly reported that they're not fighting the war for the man or for Uncle Sam or for Donald Trump or the U.S. government. They're fighting the war for their buddies in the foxhole with them. And that's kind of the beauty of the church for me. Wards seem to be divinely inspired to be around a couple hundred people at max. And studies have shown that when groups get bigger than a couple hundred people, they can't operate and function through interpersonal relationships of trust. When they get bigger than a few hundred people, then you need structure and rules and laws and processes that fill in for the lack of interpersonal relationships and interpersonal trust. But a couple hundred people and below, you can kind of all function together and somehow work it all out. That's been my experience in my ward. We all kind of work out how to take care of someone and we all kind of work out when we need something and we all kind of step up and do our part and people are judging each other based on their inability to do something this week or their great contributions next week or, you know, whatever it is. In that sense, in my ward, and I think for most wards for that matter, you know, we're going to church and contributing for all the other people in the foxhole with us. The final email is from Vicki. She writes, your recent podcast on contagious ideas, which is episode 25, gave me some twinges of shame when you talked about people who get upset about certain issues like blacks and the priesthood and then throw the baby out with the bathwater. I realize it's more than that, but it made me wonder when I tipped from having a few serious issues to being cynical about everything. But the reason I'm writing is that you also mentioned polygamy 
and seem to repeat that this no longer is taught. So people shouldn't have an issue with it. I don't agree since, and you alluded to this, the church only teaches that there is no polygamy now. In fact, men who are sealed today to new wives after the death of a spouse are promised those relationships eternally, and I believe we're taught that new polygamous relationships can be entered into after this life as well. It seems to me that the church cleaned up its polygamy in the same way that a child who's told to clean up his room just shoves everything into the closet. Now, Vicky makes a lot of excellent points. I'm not quite sure I... I'm not sure I completely agree with her analogy that polygamy in the church today is roughly the same as a child having just shoved all his toys into the closet. I think in 1910 or 1915, that that was probably a very applicable analogy. You know, that was a time when the church was stating publicly that we were not practicing polygamy, when in fact in Mexico or in Canada or, you know, among the elite in Salt Lake City, we were practicing polygamy. So... In that sense, polygamy kind of was like, you know, a bunch of toys tossed into the closet, out of sight, out of mind. But she makes a fair point about this this residual doctrine that sort of lives on that today you can enter in ceilings, have relationships sealed that will live on throughout the eternities. And when you get to those eternities, they will be polygamist relationships. Vicki pointed out that she is sealed to a man who is her second husband. Her first husband died. So she's sealed to this second man. And her son from the first husband is also sealed to this second man. And that this man has presumably a wife sealed from his first marriage to him. So in the eternities, according to Mormon doctrine, they'll all be living together as polygamists. Well, that's kind of weird. My own view on this topic is that this is a total made-up doctrine. This being this kind of bridge doctrine that lives on inside the church that somehow polygamy will survive in the next realm. And I think the church invented this doctrine because polygamy itself was revealed by Joseph Smith in a massive section of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 132. And that section also contains all the other sealing stuff that we love as Mormons. All the eternal family stuff is also in that section. And we want to keep all the ceiling stuff that we love. We love the idea of being with our spouse and our kids into the eternities. That's an awesome idea. We love it. But it just so happens that when you pick that stick up, at the other end of the long stick is polygamy, which is in section 132. And it's tough to just chuck polygamy wholesale without also chucking the ceiling power. Unlike other doctrines like Adam-God theory or the Mark of Cain or some of these sort of things that we've changed course on, you can't do that so glibly and blithely with, with polygamy because it's so part and parcel of the ceiling power. And so we had to make up something like this, this bridge polygamy doctrine that we didn't have to make up when we chucked Adam-God theory or blood atonement or, or you know, allowed got rid of the priesthood ban. So Vicky's right, and I empathize with her that this is weird and causes weird mental thoughts, and that's a bummer, and I, I don't acknowledge that enough because for all practical purposes, we, we don't practice polygamy. We've done everything we can in this century to distance ourselves from those polygamous weirdos. Yet, at the same time, as Vicky points out, 
this doctrine lives on in sort of this, you know, other realmly state. And I choose just not to believe that that bridge doctrine is worth the, the paper it's written on, if it is written on paper. I believe likewise that polygamy in section, as described in section 132, which is the, the handbook, the step-by-step of, how, of what you should go through, the steps you need to go through if you want to espouse a new virgin, if you happen to be married to someone else, I believe that is also nonsense, not inspired. Opinions that I'll share with my cousins or my brothers or, you know, but I don't go around my ward expressing these opinions because whenever I have, sometimes people look at me cross-eyed because saying something like that is clearly cafeteria Mormonism. But I have made a choice for myself, instead of going insane, trying to do endless mental gymnastics to somehow keep the big Jenga pile all together, that I am just going to jettison polygamy as dumb, as a relic, as a mistake in my more sardonic moments, as an Anabaptist, you know, evil. Some people react to my opinions about polygamy by basically saying, well, you, you can't do that. You can't just pick and choose. And I'm here to say, yes, you can, and you ought to. The same way I wasn't going to go door to door when Proposition 8 came up, the same way I'm not going to make the young man wearing a powder blue shirt feel guilty for not wearing a white one, I'm not going to put a lot of stock in this bridge polygamy in the netherworld type of weird band-aid that we've thought up so that we don't have to chuck section 132 so that we can keep the rest of the ceiling powers that we love. And I do love those doctrines and thoughts and blessings. And I believe them and I think they're efficacious. And if I'm wrong about all this, I really don't think God cares all that much. The second counselor in the elders quorum might, the ward clerk might, my stake president might, but I don't think God does. So I'm going to retain that authority for myself, because at the end of the day, the church is a voluntary organization. We choose to participate. We choose what we're going to believe. We choose whether we're going to come or not. And if we really choose, then while we're there, we'll feel better knowing it's our choice. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or message me at Facebook at Jack Nanique or Mormon Awakenings. Until next time.